One of the verses that um, just came to mind last night for us there's a couple of them, but one is uh, Colossians chapter two, verse seven. In the New Living Translation, it says, Let your roots grow down into Him, and let your lives be built on Him, that your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. And just that idea of, there's just so many different pictures that God has for us of being built upon Him. Um, He talks about His Word being like, a rock, and that we build our house upon what he says, and, and if we live by it, then our, our houses are built upon a rock. And he uses the, the analogy there of, of like roots going down deep. And it says, let our roots go deep into Christ. And as that happens, our faith will grow. And we know that what is Christ, you know, who is Christ? Well, he can't be separated from his word. His words are life. And as we're as we're rooted and grounded in Christ and, and what he says about how to live life, our hearts and our minds, our lives are changed. We grow. And I don't know about you, but I it's miserable to be a Christian and not be growing. Because then you have to manufacture fruit. You have to manufacture stuff. And we're not in the manufacturing business. We're in the growing business. And I just uh, I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles and to take notes and to uh, do whatever you need to do as an individual before God to let His Word take root in your heart and to let it go deep and to, be, to take these things that we're talking about, even though some of these things are strange this morning, um, just let it affect you in such a profound way that you will never be the same. And that's, that's why, you know, part of the reason why we gather here on Sunday morning is, is we spend a lot of time opening His Word and talking about His Word so that we will be changed, transformed into the image of Christ. And so I want to encourage you as we go just to know that God is with you. He loves you. He's given you His Word to grow. If you feel stuck, I'll tell you what, there's hope. And so let's, let's dig into the hope. And... I know this, this is kind of weird because we're going to be talking about giants here for a second, but uh, this felt like that was something the Lord wanted me to share with you. Um, but it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to him, uh, born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of, of humans, or man, were beautiful, and they married many of them, uh, any of them that they chose. And then verse 3 says, The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, and their days uh, will be 120 years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God went to them to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And it says, They were the heroes of old, men of renown. One of the most clear passages of Scripture does not need any exhortation whatsoever. You understand it, right? (laughs) What in the world is is being said here and we're leading up if we're if we're looking at the the creation of the world we have chapter three the fall of mankind we have sinfulness beginning to reign on the earth and get exponentially horrible we're leading up to the destruction of the earth by a worldwide flood and god is kind of giving us some uh 
He's just laying some groundwork as to what's going on in humanity, what's going on on the earth during these times that would lead up to such an event. And the beginning of Genesis 6 is a very interesting passage of Scripture because there are a few different views of what is being talked about here, of what is being said. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And there are a couple different major interpretations on this, and I just want to share them with you for a minute. It says, uh, you know, and it all revolves around what is, what, what are they talking about, the sons of God and the daughters of men? What, what does that mean? And so one of the interpretations is that the terms are referring to two different lines of Adam. And this is kind of the standard thing that was taught. And the sons of God, meaning the descendants of Seth. Remember Adam had a couple of different sons there that are recorded in Genesis, Cain and Abel. Then Abel died and then uh, was, was murdered by Cain. And then actually Seth was born and Eve said, hey, I'm going to name him appointed. In other words, God has appointed another in his place. And there's a hint from the very beginning of Scripture that it's through that line that the Messiah would come, Genesis 3. Uh, we see that hint of the, the serpent shall strike his heel, but he shall crush his head, the seed of the woman. And it talks about that, that idea of the seed, the seed which is Christ, gets um, talked about more and more and more and more as you go further in the Bible and you finally realize, wow, the plan of God all along was Christ. And it's through the seed of the woman that Christ would come. <clears throat> but the idea of the sons of God, meaning the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of, of man, meaning the humans, or the in, in, or man, you know, daughters of man, it says humans in some of your translations there, just meaning man, it refers to the descendants of Cain. So one being the descendants of, man, of, of Seth, one being the descendants of Cain. What's the significance of that? Well, they spiritualize it and say, well, that's the godly dwelling with the ungodly. These two groups are getting together and getting married. And that's why you have these problems on the earth. That's a far stretch. Uh, but that is what's taught in cemetery and other, I mean, seminary and other places. <clears throat> and was that on purpose? We'll see. But that, that is what is taught. And uh, I can see the biblical principle of God desiring his people to be separate. I can see that. But to take that and get that out of Genesis chapter uh, chapter 6 here it might be a little bit, a bit of a stretch. And, but nevertheless, uh, good brothers and sisters see it that way. There's another interpretation to me that seems to have more of a bite, and, and yes, it's controversial. Anything is controversial in the Bible. Because uh, it, it seems strange to us. And the second major interpretation, which many conservative so scholars hold to, uh, is, is different in that the sons of God is referring to angels angels taking human form or demons possessing men, something like that. And that the daughters of men means exactly what it says, women. So this interpretation is saying that the fallen angels or demons are somehow had physical relations with human women and their offspring were the Nephilim. And uh, doesn't that seem strange? But as you go through scripture, the idea is what does the sons of God mean? And you have to, if you go to the Bible to interpret the Bible, you go in the Old Testament, in Job, in three other places, it talks about the term sons of God. What is that? And it's always referring to angels. And so, as you know, another example, so it, both, uh, that's uh, Job uh, 
chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and 38, verse 7, all refers to the sons of God as being angels. Another interesting aspect, as you know, the Old Testament uh, was written in mostly Hebrew, tiny bit of Daniel's Aramaic, but it was written in Hebrew. And so what happened in between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament is 70 scholars got together in Alexandria, Egypt, and they, uh, Hebrew scholars, and they translated the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. The cool thing about Greek is it is incredibly accurate. Incredibly accurate. We have words for love in English. I love my cat. I love my wife. I love God. What do those things mean? Different things, right? But it's implied by the context you understand what it means. Sometimes you don't. Well, Greek is incredibly accurate in that when it says that you <coughs> love your brother, it's phileo. It's a brotherly love, Philadelphia. But when God loves, it's, it's an unconditional love. For God so loved, he agape the world. And so these words are, are very specific. Very specific in Greek. And so when these guys translated sons of God here in Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, they translated as angels. That is the understanding of the Jewish rabbis. That is the understanding of the, of the, the text. And so most likely that is exactly what it's talking about. Uh, even, which is, and I hardly ever like to quote extra biblical books when I'm doing this, but for example, the book of First Enoch, which is not inspired scripture. However, it's very interesting. It has portions that line up exactly with scripture. Scripture quotes it uh, from uh, the book of Jude. And so there's some uh, interesting things there. It may contain some accurate accounts, but this is what it says. Take this with a grain of salt, throw it away. That's fine. Uh, and it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied and that those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And they took unto themselves wives, and each one chose for himself one. And they began to go into them and defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants. And those and there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication. They were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. And so take that for what it's worth. That's the book of Enoch, which the Bible quotes. I wouldn't call that scripture whatsoever. However, there are, there's a majority of the interpretation that this is talking about an event where angels, they had relations with women on the earth. That's the standard teaching there. And I'm going to go further in the New Testament, which explains more of it. So I don't want to just throw out fairy tales there. I'm giving you two examples of what people believe. And so most likely the Bible is describing that somehow fondly angels did this. This is obviously without, not without controversy. And, and because the NIV says that the sons of God, uh, these angels, they marry the daughters of men, many people quote Luke, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 24 through 25, where it says, Jesus replied, speaking of the heavenly bodies that we're going to have, uh, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so, uh, if our resurrected bodies are going to be like the bodies of angels who do not marry, then the sons of God cannot be angels who are clearly marrying here in Genesis. Do you see that? However, 
This is where, this, see, this is what I get to do all week. Isn't this fun? Come on, we're going to get to an application here in just a bit. The reason that it's trans- translated, the uh, reason that, that they translated it, that angels married, is because uh, the term is took wives. And they took wives. Well, that word wives means women. Okay? Just like Adam means earth or it means man. And so what word do you use? Do you use wives or do you use women? Because that makes a whole bit of difference. They took wives. Well, that implies marriage. Taking women means they took the women. So you'll have the older, like the King James, New King James will say they took women. And the, and you'll have the, the NIV, it'll say they took wives. So they're trying to grapple with this. What is it saying? Different implications. And so either way, the angels are not doing what they're supposed to do. We know this. Okay, big picture, rolling back there. They're not supposed to be doing these things. And it would seem as a result of this action introduced introducing this hybrid people into society, the Nephilim, which the scriptures is filled with at very interesting times, by the way. The giants, always in opposition of God's plan. Uh, that it says in verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit is not going to contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, something I've always thought is they're saying that the outer span of, of human life, we can't live past 120 years. And what, from what I understand from what I've read in the Hebrew here is that that's not what it's saying. It's saying that 120 years from this day, the flood's going to come. And so that's pretty interesting. And so with this view, women have to come to the conclusion that Satan might be trying to pollute that seed, that seed of Christ by polluting the human population. I don't know. Take it with a... You know, you got to study and see what you think. Regardless, these children being born, these demigods, the Nephilim, were pretty impressive. They're men of renown, the men of old. We'll talk about that in a second. It says, in verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. The Nephilim means the defiled ones. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans, and they had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And this is thought by many um, that this is where mythology came from. Um, if you look in every single human culture, we've got mythology, these stories of these giants with super abilities. And it's hard to be denied that these things came about. The Nephilim, they're they a pro- product of fallen angels and women, the heroes of old, men of renown. The New Testament is mostly, <clears throat> most likely supports this view of the sons of God being, made, being angels. If you read in Jude chapter 5, verse 7, I have chapter 5, there's only one chapter, Jude, Jude chapter 1, obviously, verse 5 through 7. It says this, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, very important. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwellings, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality or going after strange flesh and perversion. They serve as examples of those who will suffer punishment 
of eternal fire. So Judah's linking the actions of Sodom and Gomorrah with the action of these specific angels in the same way, in the same way that this happened. Notice all angels are not locked up right now, are they? It's talking about a specific group. Why, are, why is this specific group locked up? And I think that the hint that Judas is linking here is it's the same way. They've gone after something that they shouldn't have gone after that they weren't designed for or made for, and they did it. And that's the same thing they were talking about with Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality. And he's saying these are signs. These are, these are parallels here. That's Jude. For the Sodom and Gomorrah, were, they were lusting after men, going after strange flesh. Not what God had. Could they do it? Yes. Were they supposed to? No. In a similar way, the angels went after strange flesh. How could this be? I know this is, this is kind of crazy, but listen to this stuff. Jude 6, verse 6, says, And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. They abandoned the, these angels. They abandoned their proper dwelling. Well, when I read that, it sounds like they left home. Right? But again, you go into what it's actually saying, and it's a lot different. There's this word for dwelling, okaterion. It's only two places, two places. Right here in Jude and another place in 2 Corinthians. Check out what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, our dwelling, our okaterion, which is from heaven. So this idea... We desire to be clothed with our house, which is from heaven. It's not talking about a house, a dwelling. It's talking about a body. That word is only in two places. You put those two things together, and it says, we are longing to be clothed in the body that will make us like the angels, like Christ, so to speak. We long to be clothed with our heavenly body. Does that make sense? Jesus says, you're going to have a body like mine. We long for that. We're longing to put off this body. Can't wait to get the Matt 2.0. You know what I mean? Can't <laughs> wait for the permanent upgrade. We long to attain it. Jude says they shed it. They took it off. They left their dwelling. It wasn't, it's tied up in the place, and it's tied up in, uh, in the body. It says they took it off. And they became like man. And because of this, his reserve in ever, they are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness and the judgment of the great day. Difficult teaching, I understand. Not the easiest thing to understand. But obviously, there are still fallen angels around us. And so these angels are being held for a specific crime. And I believe it has to be putting to deal with being put, putting off what they were clothed with. Coming down in the form of men or possessing people or whatever it is and having this action with men. From this verse, we, we suspect that, I, I suspect that that crime that they committed, the reason why they're being held in such dark change for judgment is because of this. And this might be why Jesus said himself in Second Peter chapter 3.19, where he says, After being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. What in the world? Your plan to thwart the cross failed. That might be what he was doing there. And so it's interesting how the Nephilim, the giants, are all over Scripture at really critical points and are always in opposition to God's plan. So take time 
to chew on this yourself. Okay, don't just take what Matt says and say, oh, that's gospel truth. Believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out what God says here. Study and show yourself approved. Go to the word, go through it. Match the scriptures, read the Greek, whatever it is. But I believe what this is saying here in Genesis is the clear teaching that something supernatural is happening there in the offspring were Nephilim. So personally, I see the Messiah being the center point of everything we're reading and the center point of human history. And I see that all throughout Scripture, Satan is trying to annihilate that line of Christ one way or the other by annihilating the Jews. You see that all throughout Scripture, from the, the babies of Moses being tossed into the Nile to the babies that Herod had killed two years and younger. You see this, that the Jews trying to be annihilated by one people or another. This is satanic. It's evil. And you also see why God used people, and, and I'm not trying to justify it, but there was a genocide, genocidal war going on, and it had to do with the line of Christ. In our culture, that's very difficult to understand. It seemed like Satan had won. But Jesus was victorious on the cross when Satan had finally thought he had killed God's son. Yeah, I finally did it. I got him. Dead in the grave three days and his disciples were in despairing. And everybody was weeping. And on the third day, the door got kicked down. And our Savior came out and said, no, you can't hold me down. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. Stone rolled away. Victorious waiting to bring all things under his power, his control, the plan of God, waiting for his church to continue the good work of spreading the gospel, waiting for more people to repent and come to him before he closes the door on the humanity and judgment begins because of the continual wicked human state that's happening today and is getting worse and worse and worse, the same state that was going on in the days of Noah, leading up to the flood. And so in verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination and the thoughts of the human hearts was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted. Some of you say he repented. Now does God repent? No, he's trying to use words that we understand to relate an emotion. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And there came a time when the Lord said, No more. And that time came when the hearts of man became so hard and resistant towards God that they could no longer be reached, and God said, this is it. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. Jesus says in the days, as, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be before the return of the Son of Man. We're getting there. Brothers and sisters, I don't see the human trajectory going in the good direction. I see us repeating what our ancient relatives did, hardening our hearts to God, going after evil, even our own thoughts and our intents. We have to struggle with this nine-day, just constant bombardment. I mean, the systems around us set up for it. I mean, it just expresses human, human, the human heart, the stuff we're reading in the news. We're corrupt. You know, we look and we like to point at other people. Look what they're doing. That's a reflection of us, friends. It's a reflection of our society, you know. Humanity gone down. And the only antidote 
for, you know, from this, the sure destruction that is coming is for a person to turn to God through Jesus Christ. And guess what, church? This is our purpose. We are the antidote. I mean, we are, he is the antidote, obviously, but we are, we're the syringe. You are salt and light. To shine our light before men, to go into all the world, to make disciples, to be a city upon a hill, to be salt of the earth. Jesus goes on and on and on and on. To love the sinful world, world enough to tell it the truth and to give it hope of forgiveness and peace with God through the cross, Christ. You know, we can get together and we can pray and we can read our Bibles and, and we can have good time, which we should. And, and that's a mark of who we are. But if at the end of the day, people are not being added to his kingdom through Christ Community Fellowship, we've lost our salt. We have put out the light. We have built our lives upon sand. That's what I'm saying to myself, you know? God did not save us to be on the sidelines, but according to what God has given each of us, we're to sow and reap in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the antidote for the wicked world. The Holy Spirit working in us is what we're desiring. We're the syringe, you know? Let us, let us do it with accuracy. It says in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. God didn't make a mistake. I know it's hard to believe, but Christ was the plan from the foundations of the earth. I know that like blows theological minds. You were chosen from the foundations of the earth. How can that be? I don't know. God did not make a mistake. But nevertheless, what we do as human beings, it affects him. It affects him. You know, he was grieved over a world that was parting from him. Even after people like Enoch and Noah were going and preaching righteousness day after day, they departed, they chose no. And with us, as his children, we affect him as well when we are living contrary to the Spirit, don't we? I mean, think about parents with kids. Doesn't that grieve your heart when you see your kids going in a way that you know is going to not bring them life? It hurts us. As Ephesians 4 says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their, their needs, that it may be benefit to those who listen. In verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve God. I don't like that. I don't want to grieve God. Let us walk according to his word and not according to the world, right? He was grieved over this. And so verse 7 says, So the Lord said, Hey, I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, But Noah found grace or favor in the, in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And so we see a contrast between Noah and the rest of humanity. I love those contrasts. I'm going to totally annihilate everything, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God, right? Isn't that awesome? The first thing we need to see about Noah is that he found favor or grace in the eyes of God. I think it's important to note that Noah did not earn grace or favor. He found it. Isn't that great? He did not earn it. 
God gives us grace. Isn't that great? I need grace. I don't need my nose rubbed in it. But the question is, has that grace impacted Matt's life? Is it reflected in who I am? What have I done with it? Have we responded to the grace of God? Obviously Noah had, and it describes who Noah was because of this. He was righteous, which means you're right standing with God. You're good with God. Everything's good. Blameless among all his people. Blameless, holy, not being tainted by the culture of sin around him. In it, but not of it. And he walked faithfully with God, like Enoch, in a reciprocal uh, relationship with God, talking, listening, praying, when God answers, following. Obeying, a life impacted by the grace of God. Remember, Noah did not earn grace. We cannot earn grace. You cannot earn the grace of God. He has given it to you in Christ Jesus. He's given it to you. You're saved by grace through faith. That is such a blessing. You don't have to earn anything with God. It was given. You have to receive it. And when we receive it, it should impact who we are. That's the sign of being a Christian. Receiving the grace of God, letting it fully infiltrate our lives, and we live according to it in response to it. How has God's grace impacted you? Verse 10, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these are the three sons that eventually would repopulate the earth, right? After the flood. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I'm surely going to destroy them, uh, destroy both of them and the earth. And so corruption and violence filled the earth. And God let Noah know his plan to destroy the earth and also God's mean of saving him from it, that destruction. So God has done the same with us. God has done the same exact thing with us. He has told us that he is going to destroy the earth. The judgment is coming, has he not? And he's going to do it with fire. And there's only one way of escape, the ark of Christ, being found in Christ. There's only one way. Verse 14, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out, and this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Thank you very much. That's about 450 feet long, they think, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, or about 135 meters long. 20, we're not English, so it's okay. But verse 16 says make a roof for it. Leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit high all around. That's about 18 inches. Get some air circulation in there, I guess. And then he goes, put a door on the side of the ark and make a lower, a middle, and an upper deck. Verse 17 says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your, and your sons' wives with you. 
You're going to be saved, Noah, from this destruction. I'm letting you in on my plan. And so God gives Noah grace. Noah finds grace. And now Noah's in this relationship with God. He's, he's righteous. That means he's, he's made right with God. He's set apart to God and for God. He's not being influenced by the world and their ways. He's, he's, he's holy. That idea of holiness is like the, you know, the temple. They had specific things that were used in the temple for specific purposes, like cups and all this stuff. They weren't to be used for anything else. That's what holiness means. We're to be holy. We're set aside. I'm not to be used for evil. I am now to be used for my, for my Father in heaven. Wherever he puts me, wherever he places me, I'm his. And I can be in the midst of the most evil, vile place. Jesus can go hang out with prostitutes and sinners and be in the middle of God's will, shining his light, being a messenger of his grace. Noah was that. He was set apart. He walked faithfully with God. And now, through this relationship of grace, God lets Noah in on his plan to destroy the earth and to establish a covenant with Noah and his family is going to be saved. Then God tells Noah, hey, I want you to build an ark of wood and God tells him exactly how to build it. Tells him exactly how to build it. What needs to happen? What's going to go inside of it? What's the plan? What's the big picture? Notice that God did not build the ark and have it custom made and delivered to Noah's door. Did he? No, he didn't. God told him the plan and expected Noah to respond to God's direction. And this is faith and works. This is not works that save. This is works in response to grace. Trusting what God said would come about and that the instructions on how to go about it would work. And this is what God is calling each of you to. Each of us too. You know what they call that in Christianity? Ministry. You are called to the ministry. That does not mean you go to cemetery and all that stuff, right? No, you are ministers of Jesus Christ. You're ministers of reconciliation. The same Holy Spirit that was in the apostles is in you if you have received Christ as your Savior. And that same Holy Spirit is desiring for you to be in a relationship of grace with God, receiving his plan. He's shown you the big picture, and now I respond. I walk in that plan, trusting that God will bring the materials together as I move forward. A life of faith. There was no rain. What are you doing building this big ark in the middle of the land? Nowhere near water. Noah, what are you doing Living like this, holy, why, why don't you just loosen up and go wild? Christian? Because my eye is not set on this world. It is not my home. There is judgment coming. And God loves me, and he's told me, hey, there's a way of escape, my son. And I will be found in him. Nowhere else. And by the way, you can come too. <laughs> and that's what it's for. The door is not limited to Noah. It's open to all. God's plan, God's direction, our trust and obedience to follow God. And this is how God worked through the disciples. And this is how God works through his church. And if I understand scripture correctly, that means us, right? 
You are the church. You're his plan. You're his plan. You. Say it. I'm his plan. And there's a lot of emotions with that, but hey, God chose you. You responded in faith. You see those things working together. Here you are. You absolutely do. Where do you find your purpose? In him. In his word. What's the one thing the enemy wants to keep out of our lives? His word. Hearing from him. So we don't know the plan, so we continue to do, sit on the sidelines, right? Oh, the riches that are at your disposal, the plans, the power that's there that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Is it going to be easy? Are we going to be ridiculed? Are we going to have pain like everybody else? Are the storms going to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous? But where are we building our house? On what he says. That's the rock, my friends. And that is who we've built our house upon. I pray. Yes. God told him to build the boat. And Noah began. He had that life of grace, but it impacted his life to move and to obey and to follow, right? Are we waiting for the boat? Yes, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. However, Ephesians 2 goes on and says, hey, you're also created in Christ Jesus for the works that he planned for you to walk in. You're created for those good works. Created for a purpose. His purpose. He prepared it in advance for you to walk in, to do. It all comes down to have we let God's grace impact our lives to the point of action. God's love always involves action. Listen, church. God's love always involves action. It is not godly love if it does not involve action. What are you talking about? I thought it's just a feel-good thing. No, I can't see God. Whenever he says the word agape, it's always associated with an example. I just pulled five up or four up. If you love me, obey my commandments to love one another. What does that love look like? What does that look like? Taking care of the widows, taking care of the orphans. Look around you. Let that love translate into action. Shine for me. For God so loved the world that he did nothing, that he gave. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, tend my sheep. If you agape me, Peter, do this. You know I love you like a brother, Jesus. The words are different. Jesus goes, no. If you agape me like you said you would, you would die for me, then show it. But you know I love you like a brother, is what he's saying. Phileo, different word. And Jesus finally changes at the end. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you even love me like a brother? And Peter breaks down and cries. Why? Because Peter was all talk and no action. He was, he had all that church-going power, and he was a great man. But God saw that in him and said, no, Peter, I'm going to move you to a place where that, that, that faith 
will be demonstrated in a life of power, not in the power of Peter, and I can do it, I can do it, but in surrender. Surrender. I can do anything, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Peter, church history says he would go on to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And the way he lived, he got lit up by Paul at times. He got to be corrected left and right, but it was this life of faith, this life that was moving and being used by the Holy Spirit. And that's what he desires from us. Let God's grace change you. A great book I like. It says, Why Grace Changes Everything. It's the title, Why Grace Changes Everything by Chuck Smith. And it's it, it's on PDF for free. Download. It's an online download where you can buy it, but I just get it for free. He gives everything away for free. So, Why Grace Changes Everything. Noah was given a plan out of that relationship with God in closing here. I'm going to save you. Build the ark. And this is how. You know? And this is what will go in there. Verse 19 says, And you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground that comes to you will be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored, stored away as food for you and them. So bring one male, one female, obviously not two males, two females, because the idea is reproduction, right? The natural way God has things. I want life to happen. Make sure you bring food for everybody. In verse 22 is one of the most important verses you'll see in this chapter. It is the most important verse. It says, and Noah did everything just as God commanded him. What are the implications of that? What are the implications right here based upon that? Right, if we obey God, but what about Noah obeying God? What if he didn't obey God? I don't know what God's plan would have looked like. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. When we trust God and we do what he says, we have the opportunity to impact untold multitudes. When we trust God and we do what he says, how he says it, we have the opportunity to, to impact untold multitudes. It's exponential in the kingdom. We can't understand what God has done through that person that you spoke to, that for that person you show, showed love to, that piece of the puzzle that you were in. We're here today because of Noah's obedience, because of God's grace on his life. Think of the people that have been impacted, that have impacted your life spiritually. Think of those people, people who shared the gospel with you. It might have been several people before you woke up and realized God, his grace is here. It might have just been one person. It might have been, 
And who knows how God did it, a TV show, whatever. But from the time of Christ till now, someone has been faithful to tell someone else about Jesus until it got to you. From the time of Christ until now, someone has told someone and it got to you. His seed continues. What's your legacy? What's my legacy? Will it end with you? It's the challenge I have to the church. I have for me. Will it end with us? Because it can. And it will. And the odds are that we will not respond to God's grace if we rely on our flesh. If we rely on our strength. If we just choose to sit on the sidelines while the world around us is dying and we have the answer and the ark is open and we're not letting anybody know about it or we're afraid to tell people that there's a way out because of way we'll be looked at at building an ark in the wilderness when there's no rain. Or will it extend to the countless others, not based upon works, but based upon faith, trusting that what God said to you will happen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation. Good thing you didn't put Matt in there. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for Matt is the power of salvation. His ability to articulate with perfect grammar, always. I know I kill some of you out there. And I repeat things and all that stuff. So what? It's not in Matt. It's in the gospel. It's in Jesus. And I keep pointing you to him every week. And I know you point them to these people that impact your lives. It's him. You're shining him. Don't withdraw from that. Continue to point people to Christ, to shine your light, because the enemy wants to snuff you out. Continue to let your light shine and find new ways to please the Lord. Take ground. Don't be satisfied with the little corner that you have. Go kick down some doors for Christ with his power. He's given you the plan. He's given you the purpose. He's given you the influence within where he's placed you. I don't work at your work. I don't know the people you know. You are Jesus' special ops. You're all over the place. Shine. Faith to walk in the good works God has created for you to walk in. Faith that God's plan will save. Faith that God will use you where you are with what you have. Faith that God will do exceedingly mighty things through you because of his Holy Spirit and his gospel. You're the plan. You know, and may we, as his children, let God's grace impact our lives to action. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that Noah did exactly what you said, and we are benefits of that, and that your son did exactly what you said. And Father, today, your, your arms are open wide to all sinners. Everyone who's, who's cursed your name, anyone who's lived in horribleness, Lord, that your spirit is crying out to them from the very beginning of the, of the Bible to the very end through your church now to the, to the world, 
Come to Jesus, be saved. I will wash all your sins. Though your sins were scarlet and they were stained, I will wash you white as snow, Jesus said. Isaiah said. You are going to be clean and gone. And, and, and this is the, the hope of the world, Father, that we have uh, th- that's in us. Give us strength and opportunity and to trust you and to be able to be identified with your son who suffered because of it. Let us also have joy in our suffering, Father. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let us be blessed, God, not to go out and be foolish, but to go live a life in such a manner that either by our words or by our actions you would shine, Lord Jesus. Hopefully both. And to the measure that you've given each one of us, that we would reap for the kingdom. It's different amounts. We're not comparing each other. We're just from what you've placed in my hand that I would be accountable to give you the best I can give. And if there's people in here who have never ran into the ark, who have never received Jesus, who are living that life, that is contrary to grace. We want you to be able to have the opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior, just saying, God, save me. Take me. I'm running into the ark. I close the door behind me because I don't want to have the world around me anymore. Take me. If that's you, just pop your hand up and down and we'll pray for you. not even going to call out your name or nothing. Just pop your hand up and down. Surrender. For those of us who are living a double life, who are kind of like double agents, we just ask that Spirit, you would just quicken our hearts. You would remind us what you brought us you just do work in us and through us. And church, just run back to the Lord, just enjoy Him. He loves you. Open up His Word. Receive His plan for your life. And go walk in it and see Him kick down doors and do amazing things and have victory. And be with you when you hurt and suffer. And you will. And identify with Christ fully. Father, I, I lift up your church. I pray that they would be equipped with the hope to go shine in the world and to not let anything put that light out. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.